Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Kim Elena Ionescu, Chief Sustainability Officer at the Specialty Coffee Association. I'll talk with Kim about how coffee producers are likely to be affected by climate change, how they might adapt, and what resources are available to help them make decisions. We'll also talk about the role that consumers play in this discussion, how Kim got into coffee in the first place, and more. Stay with us. Kim Elena Ionescu is the Chief Sustainability Officer at the Specialty Coffee Association. She also happens to be one of my oldest and very best friends in the world. So I'm so pleased to have you on Resources Radio. Kim, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Daniel. So Kim, we've been friends for a long time, and I remember your first job out of college, or correct me if I'm wrong, but I recall that your first job out of college was working in a coffee shop in um, Durham, North Carolina, near where we grew up. Um, you've stayed in coffee since then and made um, made a career of it and um, and found yourself in the world of sustainability. So, so how did you kind of find your way into the intersection of coffee and sustainability? Well, you know, I could draw out this story to fill our entire time together, but basically I graduated from college with a liberal arts degree. I was an English and Spanish literature major, and I didn't have any postgraduate plan, and I didn't get an internship or like a publishing job or anything like that. So I moved back to where we grew up in Durham, and I was um, looking for a job to pay the rent at an apartment that I had with a a high school friend. And um, I went to my favorite bookstore, and I asked for a job, and I figured as a literature major, that was about as good as a plan B, a plan B as I was going to get. And um, they didn't hire me. So I didn't really know what to do, but I walked next door, and there was a coffee shop there that had just opened and started talking to the barista, and turned out she was the owner. So she took a chance on me and gave me a job, and it, it didn't take long for me working in that job to realize that coffee was really at the intersection of all of these things I was interested in. So you know, it grows all over Latin America. And I was interested in Latin America and Latin American literature and politics. Um, There are a lot of social justice issues, which is another thing that I was very interested in at the time. I think I probably wouldn't have said if you'd asked me in 2003 that I was interested in sustainability. I think that I would have said that I was interested in social justice and environmental conservation and, um, and, and politics. And now I see all those things wrapped up in this um, this title of sustainability, but that's really how I, I became more interested in, in coffee than just in, uh, that particular barista job that I had. So, um, after a few months in the coffee shop, I got a job at a coffee roasting company also in Durham, North Carolina, which at the time was a pretty small company. And then I spent about 11 years there. And while I was there, that small company counterculture, uh, counterculture coffee is the name of the company really grew to be this national brand and a, a real leader in the specialty coffee industry. And, um, sometime during that, you know, 11 years or so, they decided they needed a sustainability manager of some kind, someone to really codify their commitment to, uh, sustainability as a company. And, um, I've joked before that it's like they looked around and, and I was the most sustainable looking person at the company, you know, <laughs> like I drove a car that ran on biodiesel and, um, and I was always badgering people about separating their recyclables from their, their trash. And, um, and so they gave me this sustainability job and I didn't really know what to do with it. But after some years and some research and some trial and error, I, um, I got a sense of it and then I really came to love it. And uh, then about three years ago, I left Counterculture and I joined the Specialty Coffee Association as their first 
ever sustainability higher. So it was a, um, a role I felt ready for because I'd been in that position before of, of paving my own path. That's fantastic. I don't think I realized that um, you were initially looking for a job at the bookstore. That must have been the regulator bookshop. It was. It was the regulator bookshop. And I've had a chance since then to um, to give a hard time to the person who, who didn't give me a, a job application. <laughs> That's great. But I thanked him, actually. I was like, you know, this is probably a good thing for me in the long, in the long run. I wouldn't have a career otherwise. Right, right. So, so we're going to talk about your work in sustainability and kind of with a focus on climate change today. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about the organization that you work for now, the Specialty Coffee Association or the SCA? Like, who are your members? And uh, can you tell us what specialty coffee is and how it might be different from non-specialty coffee or normal coffee? Or I don't know what the word would be for coffee that is not specialty coffee. Yeah, depending on the context um, of the conversation, we usually would call it commercial coffee or um, commodity coffee. Commodity uh-huh. is a little bit more uh, derogatory. There's like a little slight in there if you say it's commodity grade coffee. Um, but uh, but to answer your first question, um, so the Specialty Coffee Association is a membership association for the coffee industry. So it's been around since um, somewhere in the early 80s, and it was born out of a group of volunteers coming together and wanting to distinguish themselves from that commodity or commercial coffee. So um, recognizing that coffee can be many, many different things and that there's a whole range of levels of quality and there's a, an enormous diversity and beauty in coffee. And, um, you know, I think that at the time that probably felt very unusual. And I think that those early volunteers felt like um, maybe a little bit like revolutionaries in the message that they were trying to get out there to uh, the broad audience of, of coffee drinkers who expected coffee to be ubiquitous and for coffee to be cheap. And now I think that we could pick all sorts of examples from craft beer to other artisanal food products and, and realize that, well, yeah, of course, you know, like all cheese isn't commercial um, manufactured, you know, um uh, blocks of cheese. Of course, there's this whole gradient, but um, it took a long time for that message to really grow. And now the association is about 10,000, 11,000 members um, around 100 countries we represent. But um, even beyond the members, so people who are owners of coffee businesses or baristas or coffee farmers, I think, you know, there are people who see themselves as stakeholders to specialty coffee who are not members of the association, but we really count them in the community that we represent and that we try to bring together to make coffee better and to make better coffee. Um, and so I haven't uh, gotten much into the details of what define specialty versus non-specialty. And, and that's because I think that as specialty coffee continues to grow, um, we see that these really rigid definitions of exactly how it has to taste or score on a scale that is um, determined by professional coffee tasters doesn't represent the the kind of magnitude or the, the promise of specialty coffee being something that is about coffee that tastes better and also coffee that is better for everyone involved from the producer of that coffee or even the, the worker on a coffee farm to the person who is ultimately brewing the coffee and, and handing it to you in your local coffee shop. Yeah, so that's so interesting. So there are so there might be some technical yeah. um, ways to evaluate this type of stuff, but the, but we're we're not going to focus on that. And, and the and the standards are changing. It sounds like, and your organization is kind of trying to broaden the conversation a little bit. 
Yeah, it's not something, you know, I don't know a single coffee drinker who's ever gone into a coffee shop and asked for a cup of specialty coffee. So it's really a um, sort of a professional designation and um, and one that I think is is very relevant, but not necessarily as a word, you know, the most consumer friendly. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so, so let's get into talking about some of these environmental issues and, and climate change in particular. Um, it seems to me, as someone who knows virtually nothing about uh, how coffee is grown. Um, before we can talk about the impacts of climate change on growing coffee or other aspects of of the value chain, um, it, it would be useful to get a basic sense of what are the characteristics that make a particular place well suited for growing coffee, whether that has to do with geography or or climate or or other factors. Yeah, coffee is a funny plant in some ways because it is hardy or hardy enough to be grown in something like 60 countries around the world. Um, but at the same time, it's also delicate because it requires this specific combination of um, climate and elevation and especially elevation if we're talking about coffee that tastes really good in order to really thrive. So, you know, of these 60 plus countries, they're all located in the tropics. So, you know, people ask sometimes if we grow coffee in the United States and the trick answer to that is that we do, but it's in Hawaii, you know, and um, and maybe a little bit uh, um, in California, actually, which is a, a subject for another podcast. Okay. But we don't commercially grow that much coffee in the United States. We import most of it. And most of the coffee that we import comes from, well, Latin America is the largest um, producing region for coffee, but also Southeast Asia, um, Africa. And uh, the better tasting coffee tends to come from higher elevations. So about a thousand meters or 3000 feet ish and up from there to about 2000 meters or so. And um, so those are the coffees that we're really looking for, especially when we're talking about the specialty coffees or the coffees that tend to fetch premiums in the marketplace and be more lucrative for producers to grow than the commodity grade coffees. So these are the, um, you know, these are the preconditions for coffee to thrive and to taste good and to be relatively resistant to disease and pests that flourish at lower elevations. But climate change is introducing a lot of uncertainty to not only the places where coffee can grow, because as the general global temperatures warm, then some of those lower elevations are becoming less suitable for coffee and more vulnerable to pests and disease, but also changing things like, you know, the weather patterns that um, that determine when coffee flowers. And based on when coffee flowers, that determines when the coffee seeds, which are the, you know, the beans that we know, how those ripen and the fruits around them, how those grow and mature and whether or not they ripen evenly or unevenly and what the yield can be. So there are all of these factors that are um, that are changed when rains come at times that farmers aren't expecting them. And most coffee is irrigated by rain. So we have a, um, a real dependence in coffee on regular weather patterns. So you mentioned already, Kim, a couple of elements of climate change that might affect growing conditions for 
coffee. Can you say a little bit more about kind of what we know at this point about how climate change is likely to affect coffee production levels or maybe coffee flavor in some of the major producing regions? And I, I know that's a, like an enormous question and, and really hard to answer succinctly, uh, but I'm going to ask you uh, to, to try to do it and maybe give us a sense of kind of the net impacts uh, to production and flavor in, in different growing parts of, uh, of the coffee world. You know, I think that there are a few major ways in which we see it happening, and none of them are really good, which is not surprising, probably. But um, but the first one of those is the elevation consideration and how um, as temperatures warm, coffee kind of has to move up or would have to move up in order to um, maintain the same flavor characteristics, but also the same sort of like a pest and disease resistance. And um, of course, if you think about the shape of a mountain, there's less land higher up than there is lower down. And even if there was the same amount of land as a farmer, you don't just get to move your farm um, up the mountain because the climate is changing. And um, oftentimes, even one further complexity in that particular mountain scenario is that oftentimes the land that's above coffee production, because 2,000 meters is is pretty high in tropical regions, a lot of time that land is uh, in conservation or in some sort of uh, virgin forest. So when we're talking about the available land for future production, sometimes we're really talking about deforestation to plant coffee, which is just going to you know further exacerbate the climate change problem that we already have. So there's a, there's no good scenario um, when it comes to warming temperatures. But then there's also that uh, that climatic change piece, and that's what we've seen as problematic, you know, even more problematic thus far is that farmers aren't able to count on the same kind of seasonal weather patterns that they have in previous generations. And that uncertainty has consequences, not only in environmental terms, but also substantial ones in economic and social terms. So a lot of growers right now, the, um, the, outcry there's a or there's been over the past couple of years a, an increasing pressure from coffee producers worldwide on the industry about the state of coffee prices currently and the conversation has really been driven by the economics of coffee production and and how unprofitable coffee farming is and while we're having this economic conversation all the while in the background is the um are the impacts of climate change and how it's impossible to plan and how when we are talking about yields and we're talking about the amount of uh, of coffee that's available on a tree for coffee pickers and we're really talking about economic and social issues as well as um as well as environmental issues which is where i think climate change is often we approach it from an environmental perspective but it's got much bigger implications in coffee and then as far as coffee's taste i would say that we probably are already tasting the impacts of climate change. And it's a funny thing to know, because at the same time that, you know, I can say confidently that we are losing some of the um, genetic diversity in coffee that contributes to really exceptional and unique tasting coffees, we're also seeing on the flip side of things, more interesting and unusual coffees available than ever before because of the growth of the specialty coffee market and the access to technology that 
coffee growers have. So so it can be like there's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance there where coffee in some ways is better than it's ever been, but at the same time, it's also at greater risk than it's ever been at. So this issue, Kim, of um, of uncertainty and, and trying to anticipate weather patterns is a really fascinating one to me. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but from my conversations with you previously, most coffee producers are small landowners. Um, they're in, you know, often in relatively low income parts of the world. And I, I would imagine that it can be difficult for them to get high quality information on things like, you know, near term or even or, or long term changing weather patterns or, or other information like how they might be able to adapt to, um, to to changes in the weather, whether they're short-term or, or long-term. Whereas if I think about in the United States or, you know, some of these large uh, large landowning uh, farming operations, you know, they're very technologically sophisticated. They have access to lots of great information. Um, is, is that, uh, how do these smaller landowners uh, in the coffee world gain access to information and how do they use it to try to, um, adapt to changing climate conditions that are, you know, maybe opaque yeah. to them. Well, first of all, you're right that most uh, coffee producers in the world are smallholder farmers, and that's that's unusual. And it's something that I really love about coffee, and that um, that I would like to see continue into the future. But you know, like you're you're also alluding to the vulnerability of being a smallholder farmer, especially in a rural tropical area in an economy that is less developed than, um, say, the United States. So they have a, a lot of cards stacked against them already. And, you know, the access to information is one big obstacle. And many of the producing countries, you know, to sort of break it up into like producing countries and consuming countries, that's not a totally fair dichotomy. But um, for a coffee Right. I work on oil. I, I, yeah, I get right. it. So, um, so for producing countries, there's a lot of knowledge in producing countries at the government level or research institutions that have a lot of, yeah, a lot of background and a lot of local context. But, um, but what a lot of them don't have is, um, is funding. And, uh, and that can be true at the institutional level, you know, when we're talking about a, a research arm of a government in a coffee producing country. And that's all equally true at the individual producer level. So there are just as many instances of smallholder farmers knowing what climate change is doing to their farm currently and uh, being able to anticipate what will happen in the future and knowing what kind of changes to make, but not being able to do it because there's no funding for that. And that brings us back again to the economic side of, uh, of climate change, where if you're struggling to make ends meet on your coffee farm already at current market prices, at the volumes that you're producing as a smallholder, as costs are increasing um, kind of across the board for all of the inputs that you need to farm and the cost of labor is increasing as the economy develops, like as all of these things happen, um, there are no resources to go out and get new varieties of coffee, new coffee seedlings and plant those and wait three to five years for those little seedlings because coffee is a perennial crop to produce a first full harvest and then hope that the way that that coffee tastes and the, the yields are sufficient to um, repay the, the cost of planting them. It's just, it's a lot to ask at a, an individual um, level, especially of a, a small scale farmer. Right. And so, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, farmers could 
you know, theoretically uh, move their farms up up the mountain to to adapt. Um, you mentioned, you know, trying out new uh, new varieties. Um, you know, in, in terms of planting different different types of coffee. What are some other uh, adaptation uh, options for for these farmers as um, climatic conditions continue to change? And do you um, have a sense of how how realistic it is to to expect these um, these small landowners to actually make those adaptations? Yeah, I think if we are speaking on an individual smallholder level, then it's the expectations are are pretty unrealistic that the collective we would have of of them being able to do much. But if we think about it at an industry level, then yeah, I think there are certainly things that uh, that we can we can expect and that we can plan for and that we should plan for. And those include the development of new coffee varieties. Because although I um, I mentioned just a second ago the loss of genetic diversity, I'm not sure that was quite the right phrase to use because we actually have a huge problem in coffee that we don't have a lot of genetic diversity. We kind of have a genetic bottleneck. <laughs> so um, we're losing okay. some varieties that are less um, less suited to growing coffee in lower elevations and um, and more delicate. But that's um, that's partly due to yeah due to the pressure that uh, that climate change is putting on coffee production and those those sort of economic pressures. So I think that um, at the coffee industry level, you know, in some ways we've never been better off, or we've seen enormous growth over the past twenty years, and um, and we're seeing a lot of calls by individual companies by you know consortia of companies um and nonprofit organizations and sometimes the public sector also for industry to invest you know some of the the returns of this growth that we've seen into industry preservation um and that can be in the form of developing you know developing new varieties or um large scale adaptation when it comes to you know who would finance some kind of um different agricultural extension that was more about climate smart agriculture and promoting resilience than about promoting productivity, which has been the um, the thrust of most coffee investment over the past couple of decades has been in increasing the productivity of coffee farms. And, you know, there's a, a limit to how much higher yields are going to bring in higher incomes and how much those higher incomes can be expected to offset the effects of, uh, of climate change. So I think that those are the kind of things that will really determine whether or not coffee is able to adapt in the places that are more vulnerable. So in those more rural areas where producers aren't relying on economies of scale and are um, you know, making a decision between investing in coffee and uh, transitioning into growing something else or transitioning out of agriculture altogether um, to take a job in, uh, you know, developing city nearby where there is right. to be had as a security guard or something. That makes sense. So, you know, in your role now, you travel quite a bit. And in your previous role at Counterculture, I know you traveled uh, extensively around around the world to South America, East Africa, Indonesia, you know, all, all over the place to these, you know, really fascinating places and, and meeting lots of fascinating people. Are there any stories that kind of stick with you from those travels about how specific communities are thinking about dealing with these problems or, or maybe stories that stick with you about how organizations like yours, um, I'm 
umbrella, larger organizations are working with these small communities to try to to try to manage the the likely future effects of climate change. Yeah. Hmm. I guess for me, I think often about how much knowledge exists in coffee producing communities. And, you know, it's hard to talk about that without feeling like I'm advancing some sort of narrative in which farmers are these like folk heroes, you know, which is something that makes me uncomfortable. And I don't want to, I don't want to further that there's enough of that in the world. But, um, but I think about that, because for much of the time that I've been traveling as a coffee buyer, and now as a, you know, chief sustainability officer, um, I think that even sometimes in, or I, I just, I guess I think about the dynamics between coffee buyers and coffee sellers and um, how even though farmers have all of this knowledge of what's happening to their farms and ideas about what might work on their farms that, you know, they really need the buy-in of coffee buyers, the ones with power, the ones with um, more resources, the ones who have the link to the coffee consumer who needs to be a part of this conversation in some way too, you know, although that's not the uh, the core audience for the Specialty Coffee Association. And I think about how to build that buy-in, you know, how do you use coffee to build relationships across supply chains in the same way that we use coffee as a, a means of connecting with our friends, you know, when we meet for coffee and we sit down over coffee, like how do we use these coffee relationships and these coffee value chains as a way in which to pilot a different way of approaching climate change and agriculture? Because I think that that potential exists. You know, I, I think about how 20 years ago when I started selling coffee at a coffee shop on my college campus, I was a fair trade advocate, even though I didn't actually really know what fair trade meant. And I didn't drink coffee at the time. I just knew that fair trade coffee was the right thing. And it was really, you know, coffee right. that introduced fair trade into the consumer lexicon. And um, and there's still a lot of confusion. I'm not saying that everyone knows exactly what that means, you know, or doesn't call it free trade coffee sometimes. But um, but I think that coffee <laughs> uh, has this has this opportunity. And I want to continue to use the experiences and the sort of the knowledge of um, of coffee producing communities to drive that more and to to build the the buy-in of the rest of the industry and of consumers into um, what needs to be done as opposed to telling consumers to look to their governments or to look to industry for um, you know for uh, information about what's going to work best in their very specific local context right. Yeah, so like leveraging the power of consumer demand to to make a difference in that way, mm -hmm. and to shift, and again, just to shift that power dynamic. You know, it's it's ambitious, and it's not like it's going to happen overnight. But, um, but it seems like if uh, if we can do it, then then coffee might be the the product to do it because it's so specific. You know, like we don't go as much as we love, you know, chocolate. Most of us don't go to a special chocolate shop every day on our way to work to get our special chocolate, you know, from our special chocolate 
preparer person. And, um, and many of us do that with coffee. Like coffee does really hold a special place in, um, in a lot of our yeah. diets. Well, I know it plays a crucial role in my everyday life. Uh, <laughs> and I imagine the everyday lives of, of many people listening and, um, you know, your recommendations on coffee have actually, you know, made a big difference for me. The quality of coffee I drink is much higher, uh, because you are my friend and I am grateful for that among many other things. Um, so, so we're going to wrap it up today with, uh, by asking you the same question that we ask all of our guests which is uh, what is at the top of your reading stack? So what's something that you've read or watched or heard recently related to sustainability or, or, or other topics that you work on that you think is really interesting and, uh, and that you would recommend to our listeners? So, you know, I was thinking about this and I've read a lot of articles um, about, and a lot of them are about coffee or about uh, smallholder agriculture that I like. But, um, but you know, what I decided that I wanted to recommend is um, kind of an old book in business sustainability terms, which is um, Cradle to Cradle. I don't know if you've read that one, but no. it's it's 20 something years old now, written in the 90s. And I only read it recently because um, my husband read it from a, or started it maybe from a design perspective. And I thought, oh, this is such a classic of business sustainability, kind of like natural capital or... Um, what else? There are a couple of other ones that I feel like constantly get recommended as like the business sustainability intro books. And I hadn't read that one. And it just, the whole time I was reading it, I thought like, wow, first of all, so much of this is so true still. And I feel like we're still having the same conversation. And it was all written down here 25 years ago. And then another part of it that really has stuck with me is just um, this idea of instead of trying to design solutions to the symptoms of problems, to really look at how a system was designed and whether or not, you know, we're trying to fix a system that isn't broken. In fact, it's it's working exactly like it was designed to work. We just know now that it was the wrong system to to build. So it's not actually about fixing something. It's about completely starting over and completely rethinking what it is that we want to build so that we build it right from the uh -huh. beginning. And so that's Cradle to Cradle. Cradle to Cradle by um, William McDonough. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Kim, for that recommendation and uh, for sharing your expertise on coffee and, of course, for your friendship and for joining us today on Resources Radio. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.